particularly impressed that Chinch is wearing his New York Times free T-shirt. Finally, somebody noticed. Did you all notice but not want to say anything? Well, it actually, I'm a little bit jealous because uh, it fits you remarkably well. You are definitely yeah. an American large. I am not. And also, Chinch is wearing glasses, which makes him look like he's a, a young, aspiring female cub New York Times <laughs> reporter who wants everybody to know who her employer is. Or Timmy Mallet. You might have to Google Timmy. Timmy. A lot of listeners will be thinking, who the hell is that? Google Timmy Mallet, and you'll see what I mean. It is, it is a snug fit, and uh, you have not done what I did right at the very beginning, which was accidentally put it through the uh, tumble dryer, which meant that it became completely the wrong size. <laughs> deary, deary me. How did you accidentally put something in the tumble dryer? How many times have you actually worn it? Many, many times, yes. Really? I'm not sure I've actually gone out in public in it. Oh, I have. Once. I went out in public. I've wore it to bed. I've wore it in public once. I wear it around the house a lot in the garden. Not worn it to the gym because I have separate gym wear. But it, it, it would go down a storm at the gym. It would because it fits well. It's, it's a bold statement. You know, it says read. It doesn't say read the new, but if I'm wearing this, people are going to go out and buy the New York Times because it's a walking, I'm a walking advertisement for them. I should be getting paid for this, really. The New York Times is available at all branches of WH Smith. <laughs> it should be. Uh, thank you once again to Andy Das, Rory's boss. Rory's not with us this week, but uh, Andy Das, in um, at least his employees' absentia, will appreciate that we are mentioning uh, the New York Times. Chinch, are you ready to go? Uh, Scribbling yes, I'm furiously writing, there, I'm writing, Yes, I'm writing things down, yes. Pertinent to the, to the pod as well, yeah. Yes, two things are particularly uh, familiar, uh, listeners will know. Chinch preparing fastidiously for the podcast and Stephen with his mouthful. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. Although this week, just the three. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, love me, but for no reason, and Andy Hinchcliffe, both crazy and horses. Rory Smith, our long-haired lover, not from Liverpool, has been given the week off on account of him needing a week to get through the list of new house chores that he's been given. Uh, the first of which is connect the internet. The food is uh, courtesy of me, a spiced Dutch apple cake purchased from our local garden centre, which is neither Dutch nor spicy, but it is incredibly delightful. Pictures to come. And the football is changed. Do you know what we're talking about today? Uh, I should do, shouldn't I? Uh, you can see I'm stalling. I'm stalling for time. No, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I'll play a full and informative part. So I, I just assumed you were writing stuff down that was relevant to the podcast, Chinch. What, what mm, no, no. How do you spell cock, cock How do you, is that A-U over? A bit of a shopping list going on here. No, I'm writing things to do with the pod down. I'm very Carry pleased on. about that. What you don't uh, necessarily realise is that we're actually continuing our conversation from last week. We're back for part two of our conversation about knee-jerk reactions. So Chinch, genuinely, this was your one opportunity to know <laughs> what we were talking about. Last week, we attempted to both lay blame at everyone else's door while also hopefully retaining a small sense of mea culpa for ourselves. This week, we'll be focusing on how predictions, often premature but very strongly held, might permeate the bubble at a club. Or can players inoculate themselves from it that is all to come get in touch with the podcast at setpiecemenu at gmail.com thank you for all your emails you can find us on twitter facebook and please subscribe to our youtube channel as well firstly can i remind you all to submit your selections for the spm plpl the set piece menu premier league predictions league is up and running and you have until the end of transfer deadline day october the 5th to decide how the final premier league table will look just head to tinyurl.com forward slash menu and put the 20 teams in the order that you think they'll finish. Then sit on your hands for nine months so that you stop biting your nails as you watch Powerless as West Ham actually rally to finish 14th. 
much against the pervading sense of gloom at the beginning of the season. Points are awarded on the basis of accuracy. Prizes will be given on the basis of their low financial value. Meanwhile, if you want to play along with uh, something between October the 5th and the 23rd of May, might we recommend the new edition of SPM Bingo? Buffalo Mark Cole has once again put together a magic square of fun that can accompany any episode of Set Piece Menu, due to how likely we are to repeat ourselves over the course of every single week. We put it on Twitter, of course. We'll do so on Facebook as well. You can tick off all the things that we say on that card and shout house into the void about three minutes into most episodes. Um, I have a copy of it here. I notice uh, that Chinch Jack Reacher is included. Beeswax Rap is also on there. Dodgy Internet, which is quite suitable for both this week and last. Uh, Portugal and Joao is on there. And uh, <laughs> lots of other really important things pertaining to what we uh, tend to do, including, Chinch will be pleased to know, the mispronunciation of a US city. Rory isn't here with us uh, today, so we won't get Leeds, Pirlo or Hector, but we may well get some of a lot of the other things, including, Stephen, eating on mic, which is actually currently happening. I'm, I think I'm doing you the great courtesy of muting myself whenever I take a, bun, uh, take a bite out of my low-calorie go-ahead Garibaldi biscuit. So you should appreciate the efforts I'm going to. I think we're beginning to appreciate exactly what every single foodstuff sounds like in your mouth, depending on just quite how appalling it is to listen to. Thanks once again to Mark Cole, our, uh, I think our first ever Buffalo, and he's created another SPM bingo for us. Now, owing to my massive delusions of grandeur, I'll be on holiday next week. So we are recording this episode early. We will therefore get to some of your correspondence reacting to SPM 196 at a later date. Although this works as a part two to that. So perhaps hold fire if you haven't already sent a missive to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Uh, in the meanwhile, Buffalo Joe Highland has got in touch about the football pyramid episode from a couple of weeks ago. Dear Steve, he says, I completely agree that unfortunately the Premier League does not need the EFL pyramid, despite its cultural, societal and historical importance eloquently expressed by yourselves, particularly since players can be sourced from cheaper and more exotic sources, he says. However, the FA should be doing their utmost to preserve the pyramid as the EFL and below has proved crucial to the nurturing and development of several recent national team players. This goes back to the point raised about the EPL causing a rise in standards lower down the leagues as many young players cut their teeth and work their way up via either loans or transfers. And then he has a list, an exhaustive, very long list that goes over at least one page of A4 of all the recent England players who have played all the way down to tiers eight slash nine of the pyramid. They include players like Nick Pope, who appeared in the Isthmian League Premier Division, Dean Henderson in the Conference North, Tyrone Mings, Southern League Division One and Southern League Premier Division. There's Danny Ings from the Conference South as well. There is Callum Wilson from the Conference Premier. Jamie Vardy was in the Northern Premier Division South and Northern Premier Division, the Conference North and the Conference as well. And that doesn't even go into all the other ones that have appeared in the Championship uh, and below. Given the above, says Joe, plus other former fringe players like Lewis Dunk, James Tarkovsky, Chris Smalling, Adam Lana, Aaron Cresswell and Ryan Bertrand also having similar experience in the lower leagues means preserving lower league football should be crucial for the FA to allow players the opportunity to gain development experience. As always, keep up the good work and please consider Scott Parker, says Joe, as a potential pot washer at the manager's restaurant that you're creating. Well, more on that uh, in a moment. Uh, cheers, Joe. Chinch, uh, does that ring true to you? You were obviously an elite footballer throughout your career, but there are examples of those who weren't. Yeah, it, it does happen. But again, there's a fair number of players there, but compared to how many maybe get to that level by another route, by starting out at a club, 
you'd have to probably compare the two. But that again, I, I can see yeah, to the Premier League, maybe the, the football league, the lower leagues don't actually make too much impact, but it still doesn't mean we shouldn't have them for their own sake. And also, as we mentioned there with that email about the players that it can produce for the Premier League and for the national team as well. Yeah, Joe makes a really good point because I, I did uh, an FA Cup uh, extra preliminary round game, which I think I mentioned uh, previously uh, for the BBC recently. And one of the teams playing in that game, Main Road, who are based in the Chilton area of Manchester, James Tarkovsky, actually, they haven't got a system that he came through as such, but he was spotted uh, playing locally by them and was given an opportunity there to play first team football at a very young age. And then ended up going on and, and having spells at Oldham and, and Blackburn before, before heading to Burnley. So a very local to us example of a player who came from sort of very humble beginnings in terms of the level that the football that they were first involved at before going on to be what should be an England international. Uh, you can email setpiecemenu at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with the podcast. Um, you can also go a slightly more direct route uh, if you're Steve's brother-in-law, Gareth, who has got <laughs> yeah. in touch via Steve. Uh, two questions. You'll notice that this, the brevity of this suggests a WhatsApp message rather than a, a slightly more long-winded email. Two questions, he says. He wants to know about the impact that uh, Leagues 1 and 2 have on helping the development of the Premier League's good academy players through loaning them to those clubs. For example, Harry Kane, who is also on the list uh, that Joe has just provided us with all those loan spells down in the lower divisions. And should Premier League clubs take a financial interest in league, Leagues 1 and 2 and use them as a second-tier offshoot like Spain uh, in the future. Chinch, what do you think about the first one of those two, about uh, about the development of Premier League players and being needed at those clubs as loan situations for them? Well, that's been, that's been happening for quite some time. There's actually a, a recent Chelsea uh, youngster, Tariq Uakwe, who's gone from Chelsea to Accrington. So in terms of a culture shock, it couldn't be any more stark than that. But again, he clearly wants to go out and play football rather than just have it comfortable playing for Chelsea's academy. Chelsea want him to go out and experience playing uh, competitive football, um, games where, where points are vitally important. Obviously, it really, really matters. So this has been happening for quite a long time. There's a lot of Premier League clubs looking to to get their players, young players in particular, out playing. And the Football League is where that happens, not necessarily just in the Championship. As I'm saying here with this Chelsea youngster going down into to, to play for Accrington as well. So it's clearly seen by the Premier League as, it, rather than send them abroad, they do feel the Football League gives them, their young players, a standard of football, which will equip them pretty well experiencing competitive football, but also the style of football, the type of football they're playing means that when they come back, there's a good chance that they might be able to threaten the, the Premier League first team. And Stephen, you are, you are our restructuring guru. You've talked about regionalising uh, the lower leagues in the EFL structure. What do you think about the idea of uh, uh, assuming that B-team uh, system that Spain and other countries have? Yeah, I, I think we, we, are, we do need a bit of nuance. I know it doesn't tie in with the knee-jerk theme of, of this week and, and last week. But perhaps the changing and ever currently vastly changing financial landscape of football in this country, that that might be something that comes onto the agenda again. As there's talk at the moment, isn't there, of some kind of pretty substantial sum of money being filtered down from the Premier League to the Football League and, and that, that sum going up each month effectively that we're not playing or each week that the Football League sides are, are playing without crowds because they feel as though the Premier League has set the example of getting football back up and, and running but it's not ideal for them. So it may well come, may, there may well come a time when it makes more sense for Premier League clubs if they are going to see, see more money trickling down the pyramid 
that they make a specific financial commitment to one club. You'd have to try and find ways, wouldn't you, of, of that club that has its, its proud local roots within the community um, retaining some sort of autonomy. I'm sure that that can be done because the last thing that you would want is we, we may well lose clubs to financial ruin that may well be beyond anybody's control so the last thing that you would also want is those clubs that survive losing their identity and if Premier League clubs are worried about uh, the filtering down of money not necessarily being targeted in a way that uh, benefits them to a great extent that might be a way of doing that Shane Thomas has taken a completely circuitous route of emailing the program at setpiecemenu at gmail.com greetings SPN says Shane a note on episode 191 elite players who have become elite managers. The issue of how good a coach Andrea Pirlo will be at Juventus came up, and it seems that this trend of big-name former players walking straight into jobs at the world's biggest clubs is in part a result of the outsides growth of a small coterie of European clubs. As much as winning trophies, it seems a significant aspect of these clubs is brand building, and specific marquee players are needed to help achieve both those things. While big clubs having big players is nothing new, it does seem more of a prerequisite for those big players to be more image-conscious like the lead actor in a Hollywood movie franchise, e.g. Zlatan, Pogba, Neymar, Ronaldo, Messi, Hinchcliffe. As such, they need to project a superstar image and how they go about their football career needs to align with that image. So what these clubs are looking for as their head coach is less a brilliant tactician, but more someone whose playing achievements mean that the star players are going to be more likely to listen to them and not complain that the coach might be a fraud. Cristiano Ronaldo could justify to himself that he could ignore Maurizio Sarri as he could hold up five fingers to signify each Champions League that he has won. It's tough to do that with Pirlo when Pirlo can respond, hey Cristiano, you ever won the World Cup? Obviously this doesn't apply in every instance. Thomas Tuchel seems to be on better terms with Neymar these days, but I think there is a trend that Andrea Pirlo being at charge at Juve or Zidane at Real Madrid is less about the club and more about the players at the club. These appointments are as much a consequence of the rise of the super player as the rise of the super club. Uh, regards, that's from Shane Thomas. Yeah, and I think as we discussed at the time, a lot of these clubs that make those sorts of decisions to have a, a superstar head coach have the, the resources and the, the depth of staff within the organisation to deal with any of the, the tactical and structural things that, that that recently retired elite player might not yet have the experience to, to take command of. Chinch, did you hold up one finger to Paul Jewell whenever you were having a contretemps to say, look, one FA Cup, sorry, two, two fingers to say FA Cup and Community Shield to, to, to Paul Jewell when you were trying to win an argument? And which way were you holding those two fingers? <laughs> yeah, why did, that, would have been, that would have been brilliant, really, wouldn't it? You know, how many Community Shields have you won, Jagger? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a perfect mic drop 20 years before <laughs> mic drop became a thing. Uh, finally, Andrew Hopper Davis, who has not only made a suggestion for a future topic, which we have gratefully pocketed for a later date, but also has written in to say this. My initial reason for emailing was to answer the footballer restaurant question. Now, this is the restaurant run entirely by Premier League managers that was suggested by a listener uh, and those managers fulfill each of the roles within that restaurant by being the manager most likely to we also wondered about the name of the restaurant so andrew continues with this i toyed with whether fernando's torres had any chance of opening a peri peri beef chain but wasn't convinced i wondered if papa booba diop and former portsmouth teammate john utaka had ever considered opening a pizza restaurant, but thought it <laughs> unlikely. And I believe that Ledley King and Patrick Berger had a future in the fast food industry, but couldn't find a way to connect them. So I gave up. <laughs> All the best, 
Andrew Hopper Davis. Thank <laughs> That's you. brilliant. Any, any suggestions for our managers most likely to work at the restaurant and indeed the name of that restaurant at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. It still doesn't beat Preta Manager. No, I'm sorry, the, they yeah. are brilliant, really brilliant. But yeah, see if we can get some of those those ex-footballers, current footballers combos going for uh, for restaurant names. Brilliant. So uh, let us return then to our conversation from last week about knee-jerk reactions early in a season and consider how the nonsense for which we are all partly responsible might encroach into those actually doing the footballing. Our hastily assembled narratives mirrored by how players feel within the four walls of a club. Do they struggle internally to shake off a tag that might be determined externally? Or is it true that they are so able to isolate themselves from that outside world that they are able to carry on regardless? Or, as is perhaps more likely in the age of social media, can a club use early season conclusions of others to motivate a reaction of their own, either to prove a positive one right or a negative one wrong? So if it is indeed the season of knee-jerk reactions, how much does it affect the players or are they inoculated from it all? Chelsea would seem the, the obvious candidate for this in terms of the influx of talent applying some pressure which they somehow need to try and deal with. But I think Everton also provide us with an interesting case study because at the end of what Chelsea are hoping to achieve, they, they still may not have made the changes that threaten the superiority of Liverpool and Manchester City. I'm quite fascinated about what the arrival of James Rodriguez and Allen and Abdoulaye Decore will do at Everton because it has so dramatically raised expectations that all of a sudden they've gone from being the team that we all sort of jokingly pick out as being the ones to finish seventh and get their hands on the Everton Cup to actually making a really big leap forward and finishing the top six and qualifying for Europe. And I was down there the week before the season started to speak to Richarlison. And everybody at Finch Farm had a, you know, was really, really positive. It really seemed to have run through every facet of the club that this was a season which they could achieve something way beyond the level that they'd been at recently. We should say that we're, we're recording this before the second weekend of the Premier League season. So we hope that Decore, Allen and Hamas Rodriguez have once again starred in some sort of and Everton not, victory. And, might and not picked done. up season-ending injuries. <laughs> yes, exactly. Sorry for jinxing them if we have done. For, the, for those players in particular, Chinch, and for the rest mm -hmm. of the squad that now need to raise their levels, how do they channel that expectation and that positivity and make sure it doesn't <laughs> suffocate them? Well, you, you want that excitement when you get players of that caliber coming into your club. Um, the, the current squad, the existing players, would naturally think these are these are very very good players. We have a much better opportunity of doing well this season. But I don't think things have changed too much in terms of how players would maybe view the season ahead, regardless of the personnel. Surely they're still as professionals are very realistic. And again, we only. We only kind of concentrate on the next game. There's a reason why that's a cliche. It's because it's vitally important. And that's how football clubs and maybe players look at how a season kind of spreads out. But I remember when I was at Sheffield Wednesday, early on in the season, we'd gone to Old Trafford. And as usual, most teams that went to Old Trafford in kind of the, the late 90s got a, a battery. And we lost 4-0. And we were in the next day for kind of a warm down. And all the players were together. And we were talking about this 4-0 defeat. And again, how we should view it as players. And even as players, we were thinking, this is one game. This is not necessarily that means we're terrible. We're up against a very good side away from home who normally beats him. So we were putting that game into perspective. And Frank Barlow, who was the assistant coach to, um, 
to Danny Wilson at the time at Sheffield Wednesday. Now, Frank had been around the game for 30-odd years and was, again, he was, he was maybe, he was in his 60s, but maybe there's a lot of players who looked at Frank maybe thought he was a little bit too old and maybe he wasn't kind of current enough. But I remember him saying to me, and I asked him this question about, you know, the, the players viewing this game, this one-off match, should we then worry about what the, the season holds? And he said, no, all we do as a coaching staff is we look at five games, chunks of the season in five games, because we feel, and we, we, we make it five games, because we feel probably from game one to game five, our squad will probably, or the team will be pretty similar from one to five. We'll learn a lot about ourselves. We'll know the teams that we're going to play in those five games and probably where the team that you're going to play fifth is on day one or two will be pretty similar when you actually come to play them. So he said, we as coaches, we never get too far ahead. We only plan maybe five games. So as players, you start to think, well, if the coaches are doing that, then we as players have to look at that as well and not start thinking in kind of September time or look at our fixture list in November. Oh, we're struggling now. It's going to be absolutely terrible. We've got away games at Arsenal and Liverpool and Man City. We're, we're going to, there's no way this season is going to pan out as we want it. You do have to completely refocus on what's just happened, learn from it, and look at the next game and sort yourselves out for that next game. Win, lose or draw, what do you do in that next game? And the coaches will, yes, they'll look at that and they'll look a little bit further ahead as well because that's their job is to keep planning, keep uh, assessing the opposition. So I don't think that has necessarily changed for players they will, yes, get excited by new signings. Yes, they'll be, Everton will have been delighted going to Tottenham and, and winning 1-0. Um, it shows that maybe something is changing. That will encourage the players a little bit more. But I guarantee you, they're not sat around thinking there's a good chance we could win the league or we could finish top four. They will still, as players, be very realistic. So they, again, will not have these knee-jerk reactions of saying, well, this means because of new players and, and one win is we're suddenly going to be one of the top dogs in the Premier League. Players don't think like that. They didn't 20 years ago. I'm sure they don't do today. And coaching staff, certainly head coaches, will keep reminding the players, you're only as good as your last game and let's just focus on the next one that's coming along. Don't get ahead of yourselves. One of the things that Rory mentioned last week was about the length of the season being crucial in how we tend to, to come to the kind of conclusions that we are and whether that's governed by the amount of time between games, the significance of games or the, uh, the emotional roller coaster that we go on each season. But... What's also interesting this year in particular is that you haven't had the amount of time between the two seasons for perhaps you to be able to shake off within a club the pervading sense of how that season ended. Now, there is always a sense of enthusiasm and hope at the beginning of the season. But if you are a club threatened by relegation that you happen to survive from at the end of one season, the shorter amount of time between the end of the restart and the beginning of this new season does that make it harder, Chinch, to, to try and shake off anything that happened? If you're in bad form, there's this, this theory about if you're in bad form at the end of last season, then it's going to be yeah. harder to stop or at least restart with a sense of neutrality at the beginning of this season. But with it only being the short amount of time from the end of July to the beginning of September, do you kind of almost retreat back into how you were feeling at the back end of last season quicker because you might lose a game having only just survived and you don't have the same sense of enthusiasm and hope that you mentioned at the beginning of your first answer yeah it's, it's something that players just simply haven't had to deal with in the past I suppose you look at Aston Villa and say they had the euphoria maybe is, is it a sense of euphoria in in staying up but they were pretty much in a relegation battle for the whole of last season they've only had a short break do they start this season thinking mentally we're still in a relegation battle so they start the season feeling how they did at the end of last season, or can they kind of concentrate that feeling of euphoria they got from that final couple of games where they managed to save themselves? I feel it's players, I think, will, again, they, they do go back and they do remember 
how that feels. And if they were to lose the first couple of games or not play well, it's how quickly that mindset can switch back into, we're in a relegation battle after two or three games of a new season. And I think that is because of the short period of time. There's no summer break. There's no six-week gap. And maybe teams that have survived a relegation battle need that period of time just to clear their minds. And in a way, forget about that. Have a clean slate and start again. Have Aston Villa got that clean slate. Maybe signing new players like signing Ollie Watkins, even though it's a huge amount of money, I'm surprised at the amount that they spent on him. Maybe that, again, from the, in terms of the hierarchy, we need better players. We need more of a goal threat. So Ollie Watkins makes sense to sign. But also, for the current players, as we talked about with Everton, you feel, well, it is a different season. We do have different players. We do have a, a, an opportunity to, at the very least, not be involved in a relegation battle. So it's maybe that's why certain clubs look at bringing in players and maybe have had to do that, maybe ahead of what they would normally do because of that shortened break between this season and last. So... I think we need to watch Aston Villa closely and just see, look at their body language. Is it a different season for them or is their mindset still basically as it was at the end of last season? So is this an example of, of that permeation, if you like, of what's going on around the club, the conversations that might be held about a team like Aston Villa or, or, or anybody? Might that be a situation where it actually does infect the players in the way, or is it just simply that that's coincidence that they happen to be thinking the same thing? If we're all making predictions about a club and the club, then the playing staff and the coaching staff might be thinking that below the surface as well. Is that just a coincidence or is one affecting the other? And is perhaps a conclusion that the media is coming to or the fans are getting to informed by what they know of the club and those players within it. I suppose they're all human beings. So whether it be fans looking at how a season's going to pan out, whether players are looking at it, how the season's going to pan out. But the players, you know, they're actually the ones that can affect what happens. The fans are watching on. The players are actually either doing the job or they're not. So they can have a positive effect. So their, their feelings, again, they've got to, in, in a way, detach themselves from this falling into, well, let's predict a season before the ball is kicked or, you know, losing 4-0 at Old Trafford means our season's going to be disastrous. You have to detach yourself from that the coaches have to do that and kind of reset the players and the players to in many ways have to do that for themselves as well because there's more responsibility than ever on players shoulders to actually work as an independent group away from the coaching staff to make sure that that happens as well but it's it's that it's that professional side of that they're doing the job for a reason yes they can clearly play the game they can affect the game and how they think is going to massively affect how they play the game and how they go about picking up points as well so I think it's it's very, very important. I, I never really did do that. I think there's maybe, I think maybe once or there was a time at Everton where we, I think we drew the first game of the season, went to Old Trafford and we, we beat United. And I remember thinking, we're top of the table after two games. Is there a chance we could win the league? But that was about the only time I've ever really been maybe daft enough to think we can win the league. Maybe in cup competitions, you get to a quarterfinal and you start to think, well, you know, we're two games away from making something happen here. So maybe it's a bit different in cup competitions, but for players trying to predict a league campaign, I just I don't really think it comes into their thinking. They are very much focused on the next game, where maybe fans are saying, well, we're not in that position. As fans, we want the season to be this. So we're looking over the course of 38 games, but clearly a, a professional football club can't do that. How do the players, though, isolate themselves from the prevailing mood and, and conversation, whether that's from, from the fans or the media? When a fixture list... Oh, don't, do, don't do social media. Don't, I know it's virtually impossible these days, but yeah. if you do social media, you're going to get feedback from the fans. Some things about that are great, but I also think you've got to maybe take in and be aware of what the fans are thinking, Steve. But if you start to say, well, that then gets into our psyche and we then start to 
play differently and think that clubs are very bad. I remember many, many games where we were, say, 1-0 up with 15, 20 minutes to go. And I remember coaches saying to us, players around me saying, forget about the fans. It's not about entertainment. It's about winning. It's about getting yeah. this game won. And actually, that is the mentality. And that's not maybe what fans want to hear. Every game should be about, well, we're 1-0 up. Let's try and score two and three. As professionals, we were thinking, no, no, no. This game is tough enough as it is. Let's just get this game won. So you see the difference between mm. players and fans. But also, yeah, I think you've maybe got to take in a degree of, but you must know what your fans want. You've probably got a good idea of Everton fans, what they feel when top-class players come in. They're probably expecting a hell of a lot more. The challenge is there for the Everton players. Do they need to read it in the press? Do they need to see it on social media to maybe focus their minds on our fans are expecting a lot more this season. They as players are expecting a lot more from themselves. That takes extraordinary mental strength though, doesn't it? Because it's all well and good to say, ignore social media, don't read the paper, don't put the radio on or watch Sky Sports News. But you've still got a situation in which people like us might be coming into the club and asking questions that then give an indication as to to what the mood is outside of the the training ground environment about things Mm -hmm. well i I suppose use the example of you know when the fixture list comes out and i do this with my brothers you look at the fixture list for your team and you go oh god november well there's we're not getting any points (laughs) in november are we i mean we we, we, we've got to play that team twice they were brilliant last season uh the team that finished third we've got them away from home and oh that bogey team that we lose to every season we've got them in november as well so just write november off but then at the end of november you're going oh one point from a possible 12 the wheels have come off our season we're completely stuffed mm-hmm. and that's come, that's in the media as well the, the manager is being asked in the press conference it's all who they were playing is forgotten one point from 12 how concerned mm-hmm. are you about relegation this season because that sort of ability to look at the bigger picture before the games are played it mm-hmm. doesn't exist when the club is in a rut. And Crystal Palace at the end of last season were a good example of that. They had a wretched end of the season. And, and Aston Villa as well, to a certain extent. But they played an awful lot of good teams during yes. that bad run. So, so you know, if you, looked, if you looked at the games that Crystal Palace had towards the end of the season, Crystal Palace's last seven games, they didn't win any of them. There was probably only two games out of those seven that you would say, probably should have taken points from those. If, if, those, if those matches had been spread out in the campaign, you'd have said, well, those five games, they were likely to lose them anyway because they were playing mm-hmm. against really good teams. But when they yeah. come concertina together, it's all viewed upon the fact of, oh, you know, only two points from a possible 15 or whatever. Yeah, I was, I was looking at Leicester post-lockdown and pre-lockdown and there was this, they only won two of their nine games post-lockdown and everybody was saying, oh my God, the wheels have completely come off. What the hell's happening with Leicester? But what I did, and I'm sure what, Leicester did as a club, they looked, they scratched the surface and they went beyond the results and said, well, actually, how are we playing? And Leicester's possession and passes post-lockdown was an improvement on what they'd done pre-lockdown. The problem was their conversion rate more than halved and their, their, their Casper Michael in terms of the saves that he made dropped by 20%. So there's a major reasons at both ends of the pitch why Leicester fell away in those nine games. But their whole game wasn't disastrous at all there was actually a, a lot of merit in those nine games and they started the season really well I saw them against West Brom and they played really well even though they were slightly depleted with players missing so that's what again the, the, the difference between maybe fans will look at it and say well it is a hard fact you've only won two of nine but coaches and players and football clubs the analysts will say but this is the fuller picture and this is what we have to focus on going forward we can't just say we've won two of nine that means everything is wrong because you 
you wouldn't want ever to play a game again. But what the, the clubs and the analysts will do will say, yeah, but there's redeeming features in there. And if we stick to what we're doing, ultimately things will, will turn for us again. And that's, they've started the season well, Leicester. So again, that's the difference between maybe fans just looking at the hard results and saying, it's a disaster, this. What's happened to, to Leicester pre and post lockdown? We're a different team. They're not really a different team. There's reasons why things didn't go so well, but how the fans view it and how the players and the club, and that's why, that's why the analysts are there to give the full picture to the players, to the club, about how games are actually going. But how sacrosanct is that bubble? We've talked a lot about bubbles over the course of the last few months, but the, the bubble of the, uh, the siege mentality that, that is created around the dressing room... It, well, that's what got... Alex Ferguson had at Man United. Well, exactly. How many times have he talked about that? He built that, he created that, he wanted that because he didn't want any outside interference to, to distract and, and disrupt what he knew he had. We're on a road, we stay on this road, we don't listen to any of the outside noise. And that's what... Clubs are all still looking for creating that. Yeah, but that's that. That is a, there, there has been a generational shift. Not no, not only perhaps in the style of management, but also in the kind of players that play the game at the top level. So you've got Sir Alex Ferguson using that as a I genuine social tactic. media as well. There wasn't exactly. social media for him. To so here's yeah. here's the point. You've got you've got the, the this the sanctity of this bubble being kind of compromised, if you like, by the fact that the players. Well, it's a question rather than a statement. Do players have that sense of the whole, the larger picture that you've just been describing about the kind of messages that they're getting from the coaching staff and the analytical staff, that is being diluted, is it, by the fact that they might be seeing some of the fan reaction? I mean, I, I mm -hmm. imagine that no player goes into his mentions on Twitter, so perhaps isn't necessarily as mm -hmm. uh, comprehensively au fait with what fans are saying, but they must get a sense of it. And given that they are more customer-facing, if you like, than players in Sir Alex Ferguson's era, because there's just simply a, a much bigger platform for them to do that, is there any way of expecting that bubble of players to not be compromised in some way by feelings of doubt about what they're hearing outside of the club. And that is, that is the problem, because I do feel there is a lot of insecurity amongst players, even modern players. They might look on the surface as if they've completely got it all together, have complete faith in their own ability. It, I, I wasn't like that, even though it might have looked like that on the odd occasion that I knew what I was doing. But I, I guarantee it's amazing. Once a player hears a little, I've talked about this before in terms of punditry, the things you say about players and what they remember, any negative, even you might say nine positive things, you say something, one negative, and they will pick up on that. It is human nature and it's how the player can be affected by that. I did a game recently, it was a Sheffield United game uh, against Wolves and Wolves' second goal, uh, Romain Sees scores a, a header from a corner and it goes past Aaron Ramsdale and into the net and a certain pundit really criticized Ramsdale for maybe he should have saved this I, I didn't think that he could save it and that was my opinion someone else thought differently and I spoke to Aaron Ramsdale after the game and I said to him um the, the second goal do you feel you could have done any any better with that goal because a certain somebody said that he feels you should save it and you could see him look at me thinking what are you saying you see his face drop your grass <laughs> no, no, because I said, by the way, it wasn't me. I, I thought you couldn't save it. I just said, can I just qualify that? But how all it takes is for someone has said that, so clearly nothing had been said in the dressing room. Chris Wilde and the coaching staff really appreciate it like I did, that it was unsavable. Um, but as soon as I say that someone, and it, someone high profile has maybe doubted, who's not a goalkeeper, by the way, has said you should maybe say, you can see the effect that it has on him. And I think that is, that is the case for most players. And that is maybe why a siege mentality or a bubble is even more important these days because of social media. And actually players, you know, they, when they get a negative comment, it can kind of blow them to pieces. And that's absolutely clearly what the coaching staff don't want. So you're trying to 
it's not protection, but it's, it's kind of to get the very best out of your players, you have to give them the, the kind of the maximum opportunity to be the best that they can be. And actually, kind of deflecting all that negativity is vitally important because players will take on the smallest amount of criticism and it will get completely blown out of proportion. And they'll believe somebody else's opinion rather than maybe how they've played and, and have trust and faith in how they know they've played and how the coaching staff have told them they've played. That's one of those examples. I know former goalkeepers uh, get a little bit cross with players who've not played in goal, analysing goalkeeping performances because they just don't feel as though they have any credibility to make those sorts of judgments on that kind of situation that you just described. I'm, I'm, always, I'm always well aware of that. And I always am in touch with a goalkeeper. So every time there's a situation, if I can, maybe at half time or if there's a possibility. And what I get now is actually he'll text me. If I've said something about why I feel the keeper should or shouldn't have done something, he'll text me to say whether that was correct or not from a goalkeeping, because it is such a unique position. State. And that, again, I, I don't know. And clearly I'm not, I wasn't a goalkeeper, but I speak to goalkeepers to try and inform myself better as to, to, again, why I say what I say about them. You, you know that they, you know, they cross to the soundproof booth to get the opinion of a, of a referee, a former referee on contentious decisions in matches. I think they should cross live to the care home for retired goalkeepers, which is, I assume, is where they all are now. <laughs> like maybe they've got one stashed in a broom cupboard there. And they can sort yeah. of say... Tim Flowers, Tim, you know, was that saveable? Should he have done that? And they can give us a, a, a quick people, assessment. I think people are laughing about it. We do, we, again, it's been done with referees. And actually, goalkeeper is such a unique position. It does happen a lot. I spoke to Casper Michael once about this, about talking about angles. And uh, I spoke to Andy Dibble, who's the goalkeeping coach at uh, Cardiff, about this with Neil Etheridge as well. I said certain things. And I rang him the next day to say, I said this about Neil's position, why he conceded the goal. Was I right? It's such a unique position that I, I feel you should have someone to turn to and say, well, I think this... Can you tell me if I'm wrong? Is Andy Dibble really employed still in football or is he not one of those who's in the care home who maybe thinks that, you know, still gets the kit on each morning and he wears the gloves for everything he does? I think he goes back to the care home for his evening meal, but then <laughs> eight o'clock in the morning, he's back at the, I think presumably he's at the Middlesbrough training ground now with Neil Warnock. But we'll have to hear, but Dibs, again, he's absolutely, again, he's been through it all as a goalkeeper, a goalkeeper coach, there's no one better. I say, what's the current state? What, you know, what do you tell your keeper? You've got to ask, you can't presume that you know because it is such a, a unique position. If there is a care home for goalkeepers, I would imagine because there is a goalkeepers union that they heavily subsidise this. Oh, this <laughs> excellent point. Yes, this is one of the most plushly appointed care homes in the whole of the country. And we can all have arguments about left-wing politics at that, uh, at that juncture. But <laughs> we started this conversation with, with Steve talking about the Everton midfield and the, and the raised expectations, meaning that everything that happens probably from now in these knee-jerk reaction times to a little bit later on will might, may well be subsequently or preemptively, uh, given as a result why Everton might be improving. And again, the, the second weekend of the season might, might see something significant happen to uh, disprove that point. But, so that is a, a positive element where I imagine the atmosphere that Steve talked about um, from Everton pre-season, is, you know, it's helpful. It, it, it might help to stimulate feelings of enthusiasm. But there are those situations, are there not? And you mentioned about a player being particularly aware of the uh, individual criticism he gets. But there, there is the cliche about pinning it up on the dressing room wall about somebody who might have said something, whether it's an opposing manager or whether it's somebody in the media. Is, is there any truth to that? And could there be an example of a knee-jerk reaction that happens after week one or week two where the recipient, the club that is the recipient of that knee-jerk reaction, whether it be, well, particularly if it's negative, would do that genuinely. Well, maybe not physically 
put it up on the dressing room wall, but, but actually mm. use that as some sort of motivator to try and prove that wrong when they weren't yeah. necessarily already thinking about using that kind of message to stimulate their players. Yeah, I don't know whether the, the coaching staff would use that as kind of a, a promotional tool for their players. But in a previous part, we talked about, or I talked about Patrick Bamford. Do you remember when I was criticising him for being on his phone after he'd been substituted? And then he scored a goal. And I don't think I've had a definitive answer as to whether his goal celebrations were kind of aimed at me as if to say, there, that'll show you, you criticise me for this, but this is what I can do. Now, if for Patrick Bamford or any individual player, it gives them kind of a, a bit of a push or a, a nudge to say, you've maybe got to do a little bit more. There's criticism here, but the only way you can really answer that is to go out and score goals. It doesn't, again, for me, I, I feel I was right in what I said. I wouldn't ever change. It's because it, he scored a goal. doesn't make me think, oh, I was wrong. I don't think that at all. But if players maybe need, or certain players need that kind of, I don't know, it's like a, a cattle prod. that suddenly kind of feel, we're well, right, I'm going to show that person or you know that journalist that's written about me, I'm going to prove them wrong. I, I think that's just... But some people can go the other way, go under when they have criticism like that. And they can think, well, yeah, they're right. I am absolutely terrible. And I know I would probably have felt that if I'd have read. That's why I didn't read any of the papers. Didn't do any. I couldn't have taken. That's why I don't do social media now. I can't take the criticism. I know as a person, I'm not built to kind of bat it off and, and deal with it. So that's why I kind of help myself by not getting involved in that. And I think a lot of players will probably feel similarly. But certain players will maybe like that kind of criticism and think, right, I'll show you and, and good on them because that's, again, if it gets a better performance out of them, then it's, it's, it's good for them, good for their clubs. Is the metaphorical cattle prod similar to the <laughs> literal kick up the pumper that you got from Roy Keane? Um, I'm not sure that kick up the pumper from Roy Keane actually stimulated and helped my performance for the, the final half an hour of that game because we still lost and I was probably at fault for the, uh, for the United winning goal anyway. But I just don't see coaches these days, they, it's very rare. They might give out a bit of a, a tongue lashing, but there's going to be no clip around the ear rolls or you know, actual kick, kicks up the backside. It doesn't work that way anymore because the, the landscape has changed in terms of how coaches deal with their players. And as I said, a lot of it is to do with, yeah, they might listen to their coach after a game, but then players will probably, like Patrick Bamford, be looking at social media to see what people are saying about I guarantee that is what's, what's happening with, with the modern player because they tend to think, well, right, I've heard that from from my coach. That is probably absolutely what happened. But I just want to see what maybe the fans are thinking about me as well. It's just whether you take the fans' view or anybody's view to heart and you look at that ahead of what the coach has said or what you feel or what your teammates have said. And again, it's that creating that bubble around yourself, your team, your club to give yourself the best chance. If you start to listen to this, this, this distracted noise, you're going to have big problems. I think a lot of players will have big problems because they will take it to heart. I just hope one of those big name Sheffield Wednesday players isn't shrinking under the pressure of having seen via social media that you've pipped them for automatic promotion despite their massive points deduction. No, 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 winning, no winning the league. Josh winning, oh, winning, winning the, the league. Winning the league. Was, yeah, finishing Joe first. Joe Colapesi no, 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 is currently curled up in a ball in the corner of the training ground going, I'll never be able to meet, meet Chinch's expectations. Josh Windass will have the duvet over his head. Jordan Rhodes will have not been able to get in his car to drive to train. But, Somebody rocking uh, back on a, a rocking chair going, no, yeah, again, no. Again, I don't mind. I don't mind if people say his prediction is this, if I've actually said that. Again, it's just the, the nonsense of saying that I've said something that clearly that I haven't. Because again, as a former player, I know how it can be for players. I know the weight of like, Everton. Again, they're going to be this, this huge weight of expectation. Now, every... Every minute of every performance from here on in is going to be judged and it will be game by game. They're brilliant, they're not. They're top four, they're not. And that is something, again, you know it's going on. You don't have to read it every day or, or read tweets or whatever to see that that's how people are judging you. 
but that clearly isn't what is actually happening within the club. And you are in charge in many ways of what is actually going to happen. So don't don't worry about that that outside influence. But you know what? Fair play if footballers and the, the coaching staff and the analysts at the club are able to to shut themselves away from that and 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 shut out the noise of effectively being able to say, Do you know what, we didn't think. We were going to take points from City away, Liverpool at home, and two you know, trips to Chelsea and Arsenal all in the space of five or six games mm-hmm. and, and, and be able to look at the beyond the bigger picture and, and deal, with the, deal with the situation they find themselves in of thinking, do you know what, you know, we've, we've only taken a couple of points from the last month, but we, we can live with that. That, that's, that has got to take an, a, a huge amount of mental strength, regardless of who your opponents have been, because one assumes that you will always hope that you've got that big performance in you and that un- unlikely result that will, will elevate you beyond even your expectations. Yeah, I, th- I think for all clubs, seeing how it actually is, is vitally important. I think Brentford are a very good example from last season. OK, ultimately, they didn't get to where they should have got, which was the Premier League. But I think they won the first won one game in the first eleven. But they're, they're big into their analytics. They always have been at Brentford. That's how they run the show. The, the Justice League, which they showed the players, on those 11 games, this is what we should have got because of our performances. And look what happened after the 11th game. They went mightily close to getting automatically promoted, got to the championship final and fell short ultimately. But after you know, 11 games, many fans were probably saying, Thomas Frank, he's got to go. He doesn't know what he's doing. The club clearly knew because they'd scratched the surface and saw what was happening behind, behind the results and knew they had a good man, they had a good team because the stats were telling them that. And ultimately, they went very close to getting promoted. So how many Brentford fans were thinking, those only 11 games, we should be dispensing with Thomas Frank because look, look at the results. But it, the results don't tell the full story. And that's why clubs have to really be strong and have the analysts really tell them how each game is going and how our five or six game spell is going because that is, that is truly what's happening. And it's interesting to know, isn't it, that even if players ignore social media, even if they are participants of, of social media, but they ignore what's being said about them just after a game, for example, they'll often have a friend get in touch and they will read that message because it's come from a pal who might tell them, did you know somebody said this about you? Did you know they're yes, saying this exactly. about you? Yeah. And that kind of personal relationship will often mean that they still find out the stuff that they were trying to avoid. And just, just, just the final point on this conversation, um, Chinch, by in your experience, are players more motivated by something negative being said about them and attempting to prove them wrong or by something positive being said about them to make them feel better about themselves and therefore they clearly are motivated to continue to perform at a high level? It's, it's all about the individual. You can't just generalise and say that all players are kind of will react in a positive way to negative criticism. I, I know what I was like. I needed, when Joe Royal and Willie Donaghy came to Everton and gave me opportunities to play and, and we practised set pieces and they told me how amazing my left foot was and, you know, it's a fantastic ball. I, I needed to hear how good I was to then take that out onto the play. I needed that belief to come on the training ground, to take into games. That was me. And I still feel a lot of players, maybe more players than not, need that encouragement to be told how good they are to actually go out and perform better. There will be the opportunity. It takes, it's a strength of character thing, it is, but I was, as I've said, I'm not strong enough maybe to take criticism in, in daily life. And certainly when I was playing, I, I didn't handle it well at all. And I just presumed, yeah, they've worked me out. I'm, I am absolutely terrible. And again, that would send me into a downward spiral. So I just needed to be told that I could play, that I had a great left foot and I was a, a big contributor to the team. But I would say probably 70%, 80% of players need to be told how good they are rather than be 
criticised and expect them to react in a positive way. I, I'm, it's not that easy. It's not that easy for, for, for normal people, if you talk about normal people, non-footballers, to react in that way. It's not easy to take negative criticism and try and turn it into a positive. And it's, it's no different for footballers. Do you know what, Chinch, even though you're currently wandering around your house and we're getting a very clear shot up your nose and it suddenly feels like we're involved in the Blair Witch podcast. <laughs> I'm trying to get to the phone charge. I'm on 10% battery. I'm trying to plug my phone into the charge. I just so wanted to let you know that you have got a great left foot and you're a massive contributor to Set Piece Menu. So, you know, just, just hang in there. And over the course of, of a season, you, you, your contributions really will be important to us. If I could, if I could find a brick wall now, Steve, I would run through it for you. That's that's what you've instilled in There's me. There's one right behind me, Jim. <laughs> I know so, I was going to say that, but obviously our listeners can't see the brick wall behind you. We are we are going to do something instead of a, a sock story today, which will uh, serve to hopefully you feel humorously and suitably undermine all the sensible, nuanced points that we've been making over the course of the last two shows. Given that we have been talking about how facile and ridiculous these knee-jerk reactions are based on an incredibly small sample size. Uh, we thought that we would make three cast iron predictions that we're completely convinced of at this early stage of the season, which will of course not come back to haunt us in any way whatsoever. So what we have managed to do, Rory has contributed three uh, as well. We're all going to predict something that will absolutely, without any shadow of a doubt, completely take place over the course of the next nine months based only on from what we can say at the point of recording is one weekend of the league season i am going to start and my first prediction and we will come back at the end of may and we will consider how right we were because obviously we'll be right because we're making them with conviction based on nothing but our own feelings i'm going to predict that sheffield wednesday will get into the top six <laughs> of the championship <laughs> That's why I went first, because it was my idea all along. Sheffield Wednesday will finish in the top six of the championship. Uh, Steve, what's your first one? Uh, my first one is that Manchester United, out of utter desperation in January, due to not being even the highest placed United, yet alone the highest placed Manchester club, will actually end up paying Borussia Dortmund £10 million more than the asking price for Jadon Sancho. Chinch, what's your first one? Um, my predictions aren't particularly serious. Does that matter? No, absolutely not. I think we've already seen that. Okay. That's the, the, the pervading sense okay. of the prediction. Well, by by Christmas, I feel that Man City will probably be mid-table, <laughs> and there's going to be a crisis with a capital C and a capital crisis. Uh, the city hierarchy will finally realise that they've their faith in Pep G was was misplaced. They clearly got it wrong. The only sensible thing to do is bringing Neil Warnock from Middlesbrough to steady the ship. Philosophies can go to hell. We need results. Get rid of Guardiola. Get me Warnock. Uh, that is the first of two crisis-related points, and the first prediction from Rory will therefore be familiar. So my, my first knee-jerk prediction, since I'm not here, is that it's not even a knee-jerk prediction. It's just simple logic. Liverpool will be in crisis by November at the latest. And that crisis will extend, the crisis will start as soon as they drop any points at all. That it will be written that, written and said that Liverpool are not the same as last year, that they're not as good, that they've dropped off, that they've been, they've been, they're too sated, they're too satisfied with their, um, with their, um, with their title victory and that something's gone wrong and the clock should have strengthened. And that is because 
whatever Liverpool do this season, they will not reach the 28th game week having won 26 games because nobody does that. Certainly not twice in a row. So that's my first prediction that Liverpool will be in crisis. So it seems that both Manchester City and Liverpool by some point in the autumn will be in massive trouble, uh, which are, again, all the empirical evidence would suggest that that's likely to happen. Uh, My second one is at least one high-profile pundit, not Andy Hinchcliffe, will say (laughs) at some point during a commentary, that is a definite penalty before in the first replay shown will be proven to be completely wrong and it's not at all a penalty. Uh, Stephen? My second is that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang will finish as Arsenal's joint top goalscorer for the season and pick up the Supporters' Player of the Year award despite leaving in the final minutes of October's transfer (laughs) deadline window. (laughs) Chinch? Ah, on the the theme of strikers, a two-for-one deal here. Uh, West Bromwich Albion, they are clearly relegation certainties, goal shy. Callum Robinson, their centre forward, their lone striker, will win the Premier League Golden Boot. <laughs> Jamie Vardy, Jamie Vardy will retire and swap playing football for acting because he's been enticed into playing old Steptoe in a 2021 <laughs> remake of the comedy classic Steptoe and Son. It's been a long time coming, but it's the right choice, Jamie. It's the Premier League's loss, but it's family entertainment gain. Uh, Rory's second guess will be quite the climb down from that particular fanciful entry. Here's Rory's second. My second knee-jerk prediction is that whoever spends the most money in the transfer window or makes the most dramatic last-ditch signing, which dramatic by kind of surprise factor or price, will be held to have done lots of good business and to have strengthened successfully and will be predicted great things which is because we accidentally confuse the idea of spending money with automatic success. So whoever makes the latest bid signing will be held to be the team to watch this season. So Roy's second is all about money. My third is about VAR, stealing in before Steve gets an opportunity to. Before the end of, let's say, October, the entire conversation about VAR will be governed by the narrative that the referee should not go to the on-pitch monitor (laughs) nearly as much as they are. So VAR will do an about-face just to prove how nonsensical the reaction to VAR is after spending a whole season saying that they should really be going to the pitch-side monitor. Before the end of October, there will be a narrative complaining on social media throughout fans and in the mainstream media that what the hell are the referees doing going to the pitch-side monitor on every possible occasion? I thought these were supposed to be outlandish, Hugh. I don't think you're, you're dealing with this in the spirit of which it was intended whatsoever. Uh, my, my third and final, I, I felt it was important that I took a knee-jerk reaction from the opening Andy Hinchcliffe co-commentary of the Premier League season. So it references back to West Bromwich Albion nil, Leicester City 3. And on the basis of the way that West Brom went flying into tackles inside their own penalty area with not seemingly a care in the world, West Brom will concede a record number of penalty kicks in a Premier League season before their inevitable relegation. I don't know, Leeds, Leeds are fighting for that particular battle yeah. as well, aren't they, after the first weekend? Again, this is uh, before the second weekend. I think Leeds so will spend a little, 
Leeds will spend a little bit less time in their own penalty area <laughs> over the course of the campaign than West Brom will. Uh, Chinch, I'm going to leave your last one to last because I get the, get the impression that Rory has taken this far more seriously than you have. So here's Rory's mm. third and final prediction based on a knee-jerk reaction. Whatever happens with Chelsea, Frank Lampard will be described as, as a success because it, it, this isn't a knee-jerk one, this is a predetermined one. It has been decided that Frank Lampard is a good manager. So any evidence to the contrary despite the fact they've now spent 200 million plus in the transfer market, uh, will be dismissed entirely. And Lampard will be held up as a, a kind of bright young thing of management. And if, if they're fourth, if they're fifth, if they're sixth, it will be, there will be signs that there will be green shoots being seen all over the shop, regardless of whether there are actually any green shoots. This is, of course, Frank Lampard, who was deemed to have had a better season as a manager last season than both Nuno Espirito Santo and Chris Wilder. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, that, again, I don't think that's an outlandish, uh, outlandish prediction at all. I don't think Rory is like, like you. Rory is, is not, has not picked up on what's supposed to be the fun element. <laughs> so, uh, with that in mind, Chinch to finish. Uh, it has to be VAR. I have to go with VAR. I think after a, a series of early season blunders, a mob of... of fans with flaming torches and pitchforks are going to storm the VAR hub at Stockley Park. They're going to smash the spinning jennies. They're going to smash the referee's monitors. They're going to snap the microphone headsets. As the fans insist, it's back to the future. On-field officials are going to get no technological help whatsoever. Fans would rather slag off individuals than institutions. And VAR is going to die a horrible, painful death mid-season. Uh, I'm particularly interested in when they arrive at Stockley Park, uh, if it's the overnight uh, security guards, uh, whether they manage to get the correct names on any of their name badges. Because uh, as we have all experienced over the course of the last yeah. couple of years, how ridiculous those spellings uh, uh, are on any of those names. You've, you, who have you? Andy Hunchberger? I had Randy Hinchmoff, I think was one of my favourite ones. But I actually got, I have had problems with clearly getting into to do work. But actually the other day I arrived as I normally do really early and I parked up in a, in a kind of an adjoining car park to, to where we work at Stockley Park and a security guard came flying around in his, his, his black car and screeched to a halt and said, what the hell are you doing? We've been watching you on our CCTV, you're driving around. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm here to work. And he said, well, what time are you working? I said, in about four hours. And he said, well, what the hell are you doing here now? And I said, listen, this is why I'm the best pundit working in TV, because of my punctuality. He criticised me for being there too early. And he said, well, that's fine. I can, I can watch you on the TV. I can see whatever you do from here. And I thought, wait a minute. I need to go to the toilet. There's no way I can go and have a wee in a bush now, because I know the big brother's watching. And then he spitefully put on your name tag, Brandy Chinchberger, when you got in, got in the building. Uh, mm. Keep your correspondence mm. coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. If you have any outlandish and wild predictions, then please let us know. Based only on a small sample size, that's the rule. And you have to ha hold those convictions so firmly. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Andy and Stephen. Rory's back next week. Thank you to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. I'm just hoping Jed, the window cleaner, is going to come back because I had to turn him away because I'm, <laughs> I'm in the back because I'm in the back garden with cabling everywhere. It's it's a trip hazard nightmare, and I I couldn't have Jed coming in with his ladders whilst I was talking to you buffoons. So I've had to send him further down Steve, the street. If you, if, if you turn away a window cleaner, Steve, you are dead to him. I'm just hoping he's going. What to are you? Do? He's got windows to clean. You've just got a bit of cabling. He doesn't care about podcasts. He's got him. windows. It's a sunny day. He wants to do his job. Let him do well, his job, man. I, I know he likes his football chinch, so I was worried he was going to recognise you on the uh, on the Zoom screen, and he just would not be able to con not be able to contain himself 
with with catching a glimpse. You might have of got a free squeegee out of it if you mentioned me. The, 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 what was it you just described yourself? The best in the business? Just because you turn up early? I mean, the reason you've been They're turning up... They're your words, Steve, not mine. The reason you've been turning up early in West London, Chinch, <laughs> is because you've not been travelling with me, who requires at least three stops for donuts on the way down. So you, you've not factored that into your planning at all. <laughs> you needed to say you needed to say to the uh, to the window cleaner look look who it is and he looks at it and goes ah yeah brandy chinchberger i know him yeah from the new york times is that, is that, is that ian dowie is that peter beardsley no 